Hi folks, this is Jason Crane asking for your help in the fight against cancer. As you probably know by now, I'm riding my bike at the end of the month in the Lance Armstrong Foundation's Live Strong Challenge Ride in Philadelphia. And I need your help to raise money to meet my goal. I'm very, very close, uh, and small donations from a bunch of you would help me make it over my goal. Here's what you do. Go to thejazzsession.com, and on the left side, you'll see a scrolling list of the people who have donated and the word donate below it. You can click on that, or you can click on the enormous banner ad right below that from the Lance Armstrong Foundation. For every $5 you donate, you get entered into a raffle that will be uh, drawn on August 31st, and that will enable you to win fantastic prizes such as concert tickets for a uh, Kenny Barron, Mulgrew Miller duet performance, which also includes a show by the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra. You can see Dave Brubeck. You can win autographed CDs, LP reissues, a huge box of CDs from Braithwaite and Katz, music promoters, and many, many other prizes. So uh, go to thejazzsession.com right now. Click on either the banner ad that says Pick a Fight uh, with Cancer or click on the Donate button on the upper left. It'll take you to the donation page, and for every five bucks, you get a raffle ticket. Thank you for helping me fight cancer. Thank you for listening to this program. And now, on with the show. Hit it, Ted. Basic Hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The Jazz Session is also available at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. This week's guests are pianist Bill Anschell and saxophonist Brent Jensen. Their new duet album is called We Couldn't Agree More. And it begins this way, with I'm Old Fashioned. Thank you. 
My guests are pianist Bill Anschell and saxophonist Brent Jensen. They've just released a new album on Origin Records called We Couldn't Agree More. It's a duet recording, and it's my pleasure to have you both here. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having us. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the circumstances in which this was recorded, which sounds about, uh, from what I've read about, as laid back as it can get. Can uh, can one of you talk about uh, where the idea to sit down together and make this recording came from? Well, I should let Bill... Bill, Bill weaves the story very well, so Brent, take it away, talk about, You can talk about how the idea came about, and then I can talk about the circumstances of the recording. How about that? Actually, what I had done is I had been doing some recordings with a variety of different pianists, just kind of on a test basis, and to see if I could get something. I thought, well, maybe I'll have a project with a bunch of different piano players. Uh, and so I was kind of had a vague idea of, of doing that at some point. And I'd always liked that format because I had studied with Lee Konis, and Lee has a huge amount of duo albums out with every pianist, I think, on the face of the earth. And so I had listened to a lot of that, and I kind of liked that interaction type of thing. And Bill and I had played in quartet settings, but we hadn't actually maybe... Oh, yeah, the, the CD that we did, uh, One More Mile uh, on Origin... We had one duet on there, on uh, Alone Together, right, Bill? Is that what yeah. it was? Alone Together. And we did about three different takes, and they were really different. And, you know, like each one had kind of a completely different character. And I thought, well, this works pretty good. And, you know, the, normally playing with a pianist is not my first choice because <laughs> pianists' kind of lives revolve around this harmonic thing where it's like, hey, I've got this hip new change to show you and, and here it is and they you know you can't just sit down and play a duet on Starlight light or whatever you know it's like they've got to you know kind of show you everything because that's part of the instrument is all of that type of stuff I, I always felt when I was playing a duet with Bill like it could have been any instrument that I was it was just a duet it was just music that was going on it was more of a conversation because I don't thing. have any hip poisons <laughs> that's right well yeah maybe maybe that was it too but but uh you also have a background as you started as a saxophonist, right, Bill? Yeah, I did. Yeah, so I think he's got lurking in the back of his mind. He's still, you know, a horn player someplace in there because it, you know, feels like that when we're playing duets together and stuff. So, and I we ended up. I brought him over and and we did uh, at my college, College of Southern Idaho, where I teach uh, in Twin Falls. We lined up a couple other gigs, and so we just kind of put this recording session together, which usually works out best if you've got some gigs. And you just kind of stick a recording session in the middle of that. I've had a couple experiences where that's worked really well because you don't kind of fixate on that recording. I've got a session coming up this week, and it's on that day. Instead, it's just eh, it's just this thing that's happening in the middle of a bunch of other things that are happening. So the circumstances about specifically the recording, I will turn over to Bill now for you. Yeah, what was interesting about this, what we actually did, the, the recording session wasn't in the middle of the tour. But yeah, actually, right. it was at the beginning and at the end. We did two separate sessions. What was interesting to me, before I get into the details of the recording itself, was that the first session wound up actually being way more productive in terms of uh, generating takes that we chose to use. And uh, I think it was because, you know, our, our goal in this whole project was to be as spontaneous as we could, have no preconceptions, make it completely about interacting and listening to each other. And we went in literally with none of the tunes that made the cut at least had any arrangements or even a day before any conversation about what we might try. So 
some of them we never talked about what we'd try, one of them we'd just start playing. And I think that um, after we had actually toured for a while, it would be harder to come back and record those tunes again. Because when you're trying to be spontaneous, if you actually have a reference point embedded in your brain, it's a lot harder, you know. But the first time, and a lot of these were first takes, we had absolutely nothing predisposing us in any direction except what we were hearing from one another. So that was always kind of cool about the project. And, and um, I guess going back to what Brent was saying about my not having any hip voicings and being a former saxophone <laughs> player, um, you know, I tried as a piano player, and I think this if we had any model in mind, it was that I wasn't going to play ten notes at once. I wasn't going to play a walking bass line in my left hand, and I wasn't going to do kind of those maybe cliched things that piano players can be guilty of in duo formats. But we were really going to try to have it more be interweaving voices. So I kind of tried to impose some discipline on myself to play as few notes at a time as I could. And part of what you'll hear a lot of the time really is that there aren't more than three or four notes, or even sometimes two or even one, being played in any given moment. So um, as far as the recording itself goes in the recording session, it's kind of a funny story. Um, we, uh, we recorded it at a friend's house who had a beautiful grand piano and had just started running a studio. It was in Idaho. It was real convenient for us before and after the tour dates we had. Um, but what wound up being funny about the session is that when we got there to actually record, um, the, the engineers had other commitments. So they left us there in the house and kind of, uh, fortunately, I, I know the software program that they were using to record us, and they showed us where the record button was and where the stop button was, and Brent would hit record, and then he'd run over to where the piano was and pick up his saxophone and take a couple deep breaths, and then we'd play a take, and then he'd run over and hit stop, and I'd try to save it. But we were all by ourselves. Uh, very unusual that way, but um, in some ways it probably really helped because it couldn't be more relaxing than what we wound up with. We weren't wearing headphones. We were just, you know, he he was playing his sax standing next to the piano. And once we hit record, there was nobody, no witnesses or anything. And we we messed anything up, we'd just start over. But um, a lot of them were first takes. And it, it really just felt like, you know, playing at my house or at Brent's house. So it wound up being pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you. 
Ben, I wanted to ask you about uh, something that Bill just said, which was that he, you know, he kind of tried to stay away from a lot of the the piano player's cliches. I wanted to ask you though, um, did that present any particular either challenges or particular opportunities uh, when you're playing in a in a duet setting? And there are times in this record where, uh, you know, you guys are playing very up tempo and arrive at the same moment together, or times when you're actually playing tunes you know, where the melody never occurs and you are still kind of navigating your way through the song together. I just, I wanted to ask just a little bit about how that navigation worked and how did you find it um, when Bill was playing more uh, kind of single line melodies? We kind of play that way in quartet when we're playing with uh, John Bishop, the drummer, and Jeff Johnson, the bass players. That's usually the, the four people who end up playing together. And we do a lot, of, I mean, it's sort of unspoken. We never really talked with each other exactly about, you know, a game plan or anything. And so it was sort of the same type of thing where it's going to be more an interactive. I think it depends on kind of your personal aesthetic because there's a lot of different ones out there in the jazz world. And and some people are very technically oriented and very kind of, you know, they really want an arrangement and an introduction and background stuff and they want to have like a reharm and one section and then you know, and then it's going to go into a different time signature. And I've never been—that's never appealed to me. As I just—I just like to play. And I think again, it kind of goes back to being drawn towards Lee Konitz and and Warren Marsh and the Tristano School, all that early on, and then studying with Lee and stuff. It was sort of—he's always about that, almost to a fault. <laughs> to where there's some recordings where he's way out there on a limb and. It doesn't really know exactly what's going to happen next. I mean, it's extremely spontaneous, and I think Bill's that way. I mean, he's he's he he operates. He has a lot of different types of um, uh, different units that, that that work differently. I mean, he's got some that do really difficult arrangements and and uh, you know different time signatures and stuff like that. But this was kind of the to- the total opposite of that. It's like we're just it's, we're just going to play. And sometimes we would just have a very brief discussion about, well, what if uh, you're the crazy person and I'm the same person, and you know, like, or you're the straight man and I'm the you know comedian, and we will play through a couple choruses and you kind of think this way, and I think and that was about the extent of it. And we we just tried a couple experimentations, or, uh, or maybe we would just say it's going to be this type of feel. Let's go for sort of a Latin thing. Well, what if we do it in three, uh, and and just went from there. And Bill. Has likes the same types of playing. I think that that I do. We you know discuss the musicians we like listening to and influences stuff. So it felt very natural. It felt more natural than because I've been in situations playing with and in piano saxophone situations and in group situations where the there's not an aesthetic that's sort of shared. And so you're you're kind of compromising and give you know just trying to, although I've played with people that they're just going to play their shit that they're going to play, and you're going to deal with it, or, you know, and you you learn that real quick. It's like, okay, that person's going to do this, and no matter what I do, it's not going to change what they're doing. And I like to play with the type of players where uh, I can be getting ideas off off of them, or I rely a lot within a quartet setting, just what's happening in the drums, what's happening in the bass, and there's a lot of interaction type of stuff going on. And we do that in quartet as much as we do in the, especially when we do standards, when we just like, you know, 
quote-unquote fake tunes, when we just say, oh, let's fake a tune, let's do all the things you are. And we don't ever talk about how we're going to do it or what's going to happen. Somebody starts and there it goes. So we kind of do that and not only... So, so it didn't really feel different. Like, this is a completely different world I'm entering. You know, it's, it's pretty much the same way I usually try to play, but, but with only one other person, it's much more immediate and, and uh, uh, there's not... Uh, Lee, Lee has talked about that before, where he said, sometimes a quartet's just too much, man. <laughs> There's just too much going on, and I can't... I, I like to do a duet because it's a conversation. I'm talking to another... There's a dialogue going on, instead of a dialogue and then these other two people that are kind of sitting on the couch also talking <laughs> at the same time. Sure, yeah. yeah one thing, uh, if I can just add, one thing about a duo that made this kind of unique, which you really can't do very easily, at least in a trio or quartet setting, is that time becomes negotiable. Oh, yeah. Um, and we took a lot of liberties with it. There are a couple tunes on here where we you know, we know what the harmonic structure is going to be, but we listen hard to each other, and we do not play steady time at all. We play rubato, whether it's a slow rubato or a fast rubato. Mm-hmm. And um, the best example of that is, is the cut called People versus Miss Jones, which we're playing the chord changes of the standard Have You Met Miss Jones, but we're playing fast, completely out of time, but listening to each other enough that we can take our cues off each other, hear certain key notes, know when harmonic milestones are being reached, you know, being hit, and then somehow kind of land on the ground at the same time together. And, you know, to give an example of the conversation we would have, what we our conversation before that tune was, essentially, let's play fast, let's play out of time, let's play the changes of Have You Met Miss Jones, let's start out really thick, let's get in and then let's get dense again. usefulness uh, to playing standards so that it provided at least some kind of, of roadmap or uh, maybe a, a channel down which you were traveling? Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, we, Brenna and I both, both know a lot of tunes, and we, we like standards. We see no shame in playing those older tunes, especially if we can put a modern spin on them. And the good thing is we already have the harmonic structures in our minds. Um, it's good for us as players, but also it's good for listeners. I mean, people who can hear chord changes 
have a frame of reference so they can kind of see what we're doing with respect to the way the harmonic of the structure of the tunes are laid out. And even beyond that, on some tunes we actually stoop to playing the melody as it's written. And, uh, you know, so to that extent, hopefully people who like standards are going to like what we did. They'll be able to see that, you know, while we're playing tunes that they know well, we're just putting a slightly different spin on them. Were, are there particular composers whose music uh, lends themselves to duet playing? I mean, for example, uh, Ask Me Now is on this, and probably the, the piano-saxophone duet I've listened to more than any other is uh, Mal Waldron and Steve Lacey, and they play almost uh, exclusively you know, the music of Bunk. So I, want, I wonder if there are particular tunes that, uh, that lend themselves, or particular composers, composing, compositional styles that lend themselves uh, to the kind of playing that you do on this record. That's a great question. Um, you know... Uh, what we were just looking for were, I mean, at least I think, were harmonic structures that we like to blow over. And those can come from anyone. I mean, they can come from Cole Porter or they can come from Monk. You know, Monk's tunes are all great, so you kind of can't go wrong with them. And really, if you look at the lineup on our CD, he's the only jazz composer. Oh, he and Miles Davis are the only two jazz composers whose uh, compositions we used. Other than that, it was more like the American Songbook. But, uh, Brent, you probably have some comments about that. The recent trend has been a lot of people trying to find new standards, you know, tunes by more contemporary pop musicians and stuff, do some Paul Simon tunes or some whatever James Taylor tunes. So, you know, Herbie Hancock's been doing that type of thing. And sometimes it feels like it's forcing a little, the issue a little bit. It's like some tunes don't lend themselves to it. And there is, like Bill alluded to, it's almost like, even when you say, yes, we like to play standards, and you just kind of say it with a, an air of guilt, you know, like, oh, you know, there's, there's some people that that just say, we won't play any standards, we're only going to play our original music. But I'll tell you, when I'm looking at, although I I don't go, can't go to CD stores and actually go through the bins anymore, and Virgin just closed and Towers closed, but when I used to be able to go to a place to browse through CDs, I pick up a CD, if it's got a whole bunch of original stuff on it, I usually put it back in the bin. It's like, well, I'm not really that interested in hearing this person's personal vision of the world. You know, it's, it's just, I, I'd rather, I could really tell more about them if I could hear how they, what they do with all the things you are. What's their take on body and soul? What do the, they think like solar or, or monk tunes and stuff like that? Because uh, that's, it's sort of, you know, our common language. It's kind of the tribal language of, you know, these, of jazz musicians. And, and, I, I can tell more from a player when I'm hearing how they're dealing with that that type of material because you know it's and, and it sort of depends on the way you're you're brought up you know I just I, that's who I listen to and I had somebody interview me one time I put out an album on uh, de- dedicated to Paul Desmond and they go well do you ever think that you'll do an album of music from your like you grew up with and I said I got news for you <laughs> in high school I was listening to Pure Desmond I listened to Chet Baker you know she was too good to me all those CTI albums I wasn't listening to the shit that was on the radio <laughs> said I, I couldn't tell you BG's tune or whatever was popular in the late 70s I, I didn't listen to that music I listened to jazz so I was a weirdo from you know way back Although, and to so play, to play devil's tenets. advocate on that point, um, some, including me, could say that uh, that is why jazz is a lot less relevant than it used to be, because the, you, are, you were already, when, I don't know how old you are, but you were already when you were in high school listening to music that was probably 30 or 40 years old. Right, and yeah. and now that music, I mean, that 
you know, for my kids, when they're my kids are my age, the Beatles are going to be as old as Jelly Roll Morton is to me. Oh right, yeah. And so, okay. I mean, you, it, by kind of pushing this music back like into this ancient place, it seems like it's making it more and more difficult. I mean, you're, three of the ten, of the eleven tracks in your album aren't they're not American songbook tunes. I mean, if if Monk mm-hmm. and Miles hadn't written those tunes, a they wouldn't be on this record. But but mm-hmm. b I mean, the music would have stopped with you know all the things you are and I'm old fashioned and and luckily mm-hmm. it didn't. So I mean, I guess I would ask maybe how you. I mean, you, you've kind of chosen a place up to which you, th- you say that those things are standards, and after uh-huh. which they're not anymore. But well, there was a time when that was different, can, too. Yeah, sure, I please. Can, okay. Um, I mean, I live in total fear of becoming irrelevant because of the kind of tunes I like. And, and actually, I like there are, there are kinds of modern music, like electronica and things like that, that I like a lot. But what's really hard to find is contemporary popular music that has interesting harmonic material to work with or I, I guess it's easier to find melodic material but mm-hmm. you have to to make them um, this is my opinion I guess but to make them really work in a jazz framework you have to substantially reharmonize them and it changes them so much that it's it's re- really puts you in a quandary because I don't have any interest in playing music whose audience is dying I mean I play a gig every week for um, an audience, probably the average age is 65 of the listeners, maybe older, and they're people who these tunes really were the popular music they grew up with, and 10 years from now, they're not going to be around anymore. And why anybody else should care about a tune written in 1940, it's hard to make the case to them. But at the same time, it's really a challenge to dig up material that works without being pretty radically altered in a jazz framework. I think... It's a huge challenge. I mean, I've I've recorded some Beatles songs and things like that, but I know that that's old people's music already too. And when I listen to popular music right now, I don't want to sound like an old fuddy-duddy because I'm not a close-minded guy. But it's really hard to hear the kind of melodic and harmonic content that can make it interesting in a jazz kind of context, at least for me. Yeah, and and please don't hear me wrong. I'm certainly not suggesting that the only way to be relevant now is to play, you know, to cover Nirvana tunes or Black Eyed Peas songs. But I guess what yeah. I'm what I'm suggesting is that, you know, people like Miles and Monk, I mean, they were they were writing new music to play the things that they were hearing in their heads. And so, I mean, Brent, you said earlier that when you see an album of original music, you put it back. Well, I mean, you can put all those Miles and Monk and Mingus records back too, because those really—I mean, at that time, that was an album of original music. It's just original music that we're now used to. So I, yeah. I guess I wonder well, how, do, well, how do we get more original music? Uh, well, you know, one problem is, and the uh, you know, there's that documentary series that just came out, and I haven't actually seen. It. I've seen the trailers and little bits and pieces for the uh, Icons Icons Among Us, and they're they're kind of on the it's on the documentary channel, I guess, and they're uh, trying to address that, addressing the problem that that uh, Ken Burns created with it being sort of presented as a museum piece and it's only the people that are, you know, uh, the the uh, Duke Ellingtons and Louis uh, Armstrongs and so forth that are relevant and, you know, what happened later on, you know, and even the fusion era wasn't that important or anything. Um, what happened during the, the Wynton Marsalis period in the 80s, though, was it created uh, a hard bop Revival that was labeled as, you know, neoclassic or something, and and the media all jumped on it and everything, and it was the same exact phenomenon that happened back in uh, during bebop's era when there was a, a Dixieland revival, and there was a revival of that music. They said, "Oh, this is the true 
jazz, and nobody paid it much attention because it was just a revival. And they said, "Fine, you people can kind of you know do what you want, but we're going to kind of push the music forward with the bebop stuff." And that happened in the '80s, but there was a different reaction to it. So a lot of times, a lot of the newer you know quote unquote new albums I'll, I'll, I'll see coming out, it's like, well, this is a lot of hard bop music that's just kind of a retread. You know, that's kind of the same type of thing. There's a whole school in New York of musicians that are kind of playing that type of stuff and, you know, have their own club that they hang out at and do it. And, you know, it's fine. There's all sorts of clicks within this music. But there's sometimes those CDs I pick up and I kind of, well, I know what this is going to sound like. It's, you know, it's going to sound like it's a Hank Mobley tune, but it's not. Or it's a Lee Morgan tune, but, or it wants to be a, you know, from this period or something. And, and it's just sort of a revivalist type of stuff. And then the other things are, uh, the the rap and hip hop community, and that's been going on for quite a while, where they're trying to kind of converge with these different styles and kind of put them together a little bit. And you know, some is successful. I think Roy Hargrove has had a couple things that he's done common and Q Tip and D'Angelo and and those people. But uh, you know, trying to put electronica, like Bill mentioned, and all that type of stuff going on too. It's just, I think there's been this desperate search for the new thing, and I I don't know if there really is. I mean, there's there's some musicians out there that are starting to, it's just, there's so much stuff. And because of our technology and because of all of the, you know, we've become this global music and stuff, it's just gotten, you know, it, it's, it's really hard to define it. I think they try in that documentary to kind of say this is not just an old people's music and there is a relevance to this music and here are some people that are doing this type of stuff, you know, and they, I think they talk to Esperanza Spalding and Medeski Martin and Wood and, Russell Gunn and some of these these folks and stuff and that I deal with uh, college age students all the time because I'm teaching jazz history courses and they none of them know that any of this stuff exists and there's just no way that they even know it's out there so you know it's hopefully they'll start to stumble upon it when just all of the mainstream media just becomes so similar and and everything is just the same thing over and over again on the radio and on the television and but uh, I'm hoping the internet. You know? But but I, I'm I'm kind of a pessimist at heart, and I tend to be kind of dark when I start thinking about kind of you know our the, the our society and what we kind of value and and uh, kind of hold up as an example of you know we just Bill and I just kind of work within the uh, I guess the the little uh, uh, cracks in the you know in the firmament back here just plain little gigs here and there and you know trying to keep things going i mean i play i think the last time i played soprano was when i played with bill in at the ballard jazz festival back in april you know it's, it's just just it's tough you know to kind of to 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 kind of get this music out there and keep it going jason if, if i can chime in on the subject please do uh, bill here um the one thing i've thought about at the time that miles and uh you know, and Monk were innovating. I and this sounds. Some could accuse me of being closed-minded, but I think there was more room for innovation at that time. I kind of feel like, you know, the beboppers took um, harmonically took the music um, almost as far as it could go, and rhythmically, in many ways, took it almost as far as it could go. And then, you know, free jazz was kind of the extreme, where it sort of negated harmony and rhythm to an extent. And it's, it's almost like all significant modifications to jazz have been tried already. And now people are okay combining it with a rock beat or reharmonizing pop tunes, but 
I don't feel like the biggest innovations um, out there can really come from within jazz. It can come maybe the greatest potential I see right now is when jazz is merging with especially some of the rhythmic ideas from other cultures that are still relatively new um, in terms of their exposure to the U.S. and you know the ability for jazz musicians to work with them and incorporate them into their music. But I don't feel like we're looking at really as much room for growth or innovation in jazz as there was at one time. I kind of feel like it's a music that's gone through an incredible amount of change in a short period of time, sort of a very compressed lifespan in which it explored all kinds of possibilities. And now, the you know, it's almost more incremental. You can try to come up with your own unique voice as a player in maybe kind of modest ways or come up with projects that have kind of unique identities like Brenda and I did. But it's really hard to take the music in a significantly forward direction, I think. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really interesting point. I uh, this is a conversation, the kind of conversation I don't tend to have on this show. I don't usually express my opinion, and I just let <laughs> people talk and talk about what they're going to say. But you guys seemed to be okay going in that direction, so I did. I hope that's sure. all right. Um, and you know, I think Brent, the the interesting point that you made is how many. Uh, it's certainly true in my life. Um, how many people you come in contact with, particularly people, you know, of the kind of tween to lower 20s generation who don't right. know a lot of this music exists. And for me, that's a really important reason to keep um, the things that we call standards alive. Um, I, you know, I guess as long as it's not to the exclusion of all else, and I, I'm not in any way suggesting that that's the position either of you is taking, uh, I think it's very, very important, actually, that people keep playing this music, too, because um, people need to hear it. And, you know, if it if this music not only hips people to what you guys are doing, but also maybe channels them back to the people who wrote these tunes or whatever, that's all right. for the good. And I, and I don't mean to take away from that at all. I think this is a great album. I'd recommend it to anybody to listen to. And it doesn't bother me in the slightest that, you know, the most recent tune is however many decades old it is because the playing is great. And that's, to me, the end. You know, in the end, that's what matters. That's the way everybody discovers the music anyway, is you don't ever discover it chronologically. And, you know, you kind of step into it. And I've had students... That have come up to me, uh, and they've just been like, uh, this one girl, which scared me a little bit. She was so excited about it. I love Thelonious Monk, and she had checked out some YouTube things, because I talked about them, showed a little clip or something, and she just was just nuts about it. She said, I never heard any music like that. It's great. And so, you know, I start talking to her about, well, there's other people that are doing this type of music and doing different kind of, you know, there's spins on it, and, and uh, there's people that have a kind of funk versions of these monk tunes and Afro-Cuban versions with Jerry Gonzalez and the Fort Apache band, that type of stuff. And so you kind of enter from some point, so for her it was monk, and then it just kind of goes off and then you start realizing that the main thing I try to impress upon my jazz history students is if you think you don't like jazz, you're wrong. Because <laughs> tell me whatever type of music you're listening to now, I will find you a form of that is classified as jazz. If you go to iTunes, it'll say genre jazz. And you will think, huh, no, that's not jazz. I know what I don't like. <laughs> so, no, it's, it's a really huge, huge area. And it's, it, I think that it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tough word to define a lot of times. And that's the problem is that a lot of people try to tell you what jazz is and isn't. And you've got to realize those people that start to say that that you need to be very leery of them. <laughs> they have they have a very particular agenda in mind, and they have you know a, 
an ideology that they're kind of adhering to and instead of just being open to you know whatever it is well, my guests are pianist Bill Anschell and saxophonist Brent Jensen, and uh, the intelligence and passion that they've just displayed is uh, all over this new record, which is called We Couldn't Agree More. It's on Origin Records. It's a duet album, and uh, I recommend it highly to your attention. And guys, uh, you know, thanks again for uh, allowing me to take a, a very unusual left turn on the show there, but uh, I appreciate going there with you guys and, and having a, a good discussion about it. That was music from pianist Bill Anschell and saxophonist Brent Jensen. Their new album on Origin Records is called We Couldn't Agree More. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and a whole lot more. Every episode of the show is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up at thejazzsession.com. And if you're on Facebook, there's also a group for The Jazz Session, and I give away music there, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet. Check out their album Serious Respect, the music of Sun Ra and Stockhausen, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed The Jazz Session's logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License. And if you don't know what that means, visit thejazzsession.com and scroll all the way to the bottom, and you can find out. Thanks very much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time, won't you, for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
Thank you for listening. Bye.